In our morning services, we uh, tend to work through a, a book or a letter in the Bible, and we're in a new series um, in Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're, we're up to chapter 3. So if you'd like to follow it in your Bible, it's also be on the screen as well. And we're going to be reading from verse 1 uh, through to verse 13. And as, as we read it, be aware that, that Paul interrupts himself. He's, he's about to launch into a prayer, a most wonderful prayer for the Ephesians. And uh, that will come next week. But he interrupts himself. And he, and he thinks, oh, he hasn't finished actually emphasizing what he was talking about previously. And that's one of the things that tells me that these letters are authentic. Because if they'd been made up, if they'd been sort of edited out, they'd have been just running so smoothly. All the wrinkles ironed out. But no, Paul interrupts himself. So he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he was going to launch into the prayer. But then he says, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery for which ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things." His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through him, in, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are for my glory. And then he begins the next bit, for this reason, which is the bit he's just interrupted himself with. So he was going to put, for this reason, pray, and then he just uh, puts this bit in. Let's just pray together. Father God, as uh, we take time just to look at the Scriptures, look at the Bible together, we pray that you would speak to us through it that you would give us an understanding of what Paul meant as he wrote it and what by your Spirit you would want us to know and understand today. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. I've called this talk Bacon and Eggs. Um, and there we are. I hope you've had your breakfast this morning. And I came across this cartoon. I know it's probably very familiar to you, this sort of cartoon, Help the hungry. Help feed the hungry. We should donate some ham and eggs. And the pig says, for you, it's a contribution. For me, it would be a total sacrifice. 
It's the difference between involvement and commitment. In ham and eggs breakfast, the chicken is involved, but the pig has to be committed. And then just a final word from the pig. The Apostle Paul has been describing two pictures of salvation. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, he, he paints this portrait of salvation for the individual. What it means for you and I to be saved. How Jesus gave his life for us. That when we trust in Christ, we are given a new life. He even says that before we knew Jesus, we were dead. We weren't just sick or needing a rescue, we were actually dead. And Jesus gives us life. And then in the second part of um, the chapter 2, he paints a, a landscape picture of, of salvation for humanity. And he, and he gives us a sort of panor- panoramic view that Jesus has not just come to save you and me, although he has. And individual salvation is important. He says Jesus has come to do so much more. He's come to bring a new creation into being. That actually the kingdom of God is is the beginning of a new creation that will be made manifest completely when he comes again. And that he is calling to himself a new humanity. Made up of anyone who would trust in him. And applies to Jews and Gentiles. Everyone in the world is welcome. He is going to recreate the whole creation. So we have that portrait of an individual salvation, that landscape of salvation for humanity. And he's about to launch into this prayer, this wonderful prayer for the believers, but he interrupts himself because he says, I have a little bit more to say about that. And it has to do with commitment. He says that a response to the gospel can't be half-hearted. It involves total commitment. More bacon than eggs. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, the uh, the guy who wrote the Narnia books, an an amazing book called Mere Christianity uh, on apologetics, he said, if Christianity is false, if Christianity is a lie, it has no importance whatsoever. He says, if Christianity is true, if Jesus is who he says he is, then it is of vital importance. But he goes on to say, what it cannot be is moderately important. If Jesus is who he says he is, Paul says he is worth everything throughout his letters. He's worth everything. If he's not who he says he is, then we should all just pack up, go home, and just enjoy the golf. In fact, Paul goes a bit further. He says, if we don't have hope for what is beyond this life in Christ, then we're to be pitied more than anybody. Because Jesus has come to bring a new creation that is beyond this present creation. He is going to renew it all. Think of all the evil and sin in our world. It's going to be done away with. All death and corruption and abuse and mourning and crying and pain will be done away with 
when Jesus recreates. And we are all welcome to be part of that new creation. So Paul expresses his own total commitment to the Ephesians, yes, who he's writing to, but to the Gentiles and to the message of the gospel because he calls himself a prisoner for the sake of Christ, a prisoner of Christ. Now, we know that Paul writes this letter from prison Uh, We looked at that last week of why he found himself in prison. He had been in Jerusalem. The Jews accused him of blasphemy, of opposing the temple and the law. And so they tried to lynch him and the Roman authorities took custody of him. They were about to flog him, but he appealed to Caesar. He says, you can't flog a Roman citizen, can you, without a trial? (gasps) Didn't know you were a Roman citizen. And so he is shipped off via Caesarea to Rome. He spends two years in Caesarea, in prison, and then in Rome for about two years before he's killed. So he identifies himself as a prisoner, not of Nero, who was the most vicious Roman emperor. For sport, he would have Christians covered in tar and placed around his gardens and set alight just to illuminate his, his gardens. He would be the one who would uh, feed Christians to the lions in the arena. Paul is a prisoner of Jesus, not of Nero. Sounds strange. He's not a prisoner of Jesus, surely. What he means is Nero has no authority over him. If he's in prison, it's because he served Jesus. And he is proud to be a prisoner for Jesus. He has given Everything for Jesus. Jesus, uh, Paul's teaching was opposed particularly by the Jews, not because he told, for example, everyone is a sinner. It's one of the things he taught in Romans. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's basically said no one's perfect. God is holy and we can't get right with God because of our own holiness. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They didn't oppose him for that teaching. They didn't oppose him because he said, one day we will all actually face Jesus. If he says who he says he is, one day every one of us will stand before him. They didn't oppose him for that. They opposed him because he dared to say that actually the gospel of Jesus is for everybody. And that actually God is raising up a new humanity that involves Gentiles and Jews together. One humanity, and that was just a step too far for the Jews because they, they kind of wanted God for themselves. They didn't believe that, they thought Gentiles were unclean. But here is Paul saying, you've misunderstood all along that actually the gospel is for everyone. It's for the whole world. Jesus died for all. For those who have never heard of God, he died for them. And for those who have heard of him all their lives, he's died for them. For those who knew nothing about God, he died for them. For those who had known about God all their lives, the Jews. Jesus died for all. We're a persecuted church. Have you ever wondered why there is so much persecution of Christians around the world? 
What is the really bedrock underlying reason? Why do so many Islamic nations actually outlaw Christianity? Why is it illegal to choose Jesus? For example, in North Korea, why is it illegal to be a Christian? Illegal to own a Bible? Why do Orthodox Jews still now reject Jesus? One of the simple reasons is because you have to admit you're wrong. And admitting you're wrong is such a difficult thing to do. I mean, we know that on a very minute scale. When, when you've done something and you're wrong, it's really hard to say, I was wrong. I wasn't really wrong. It was someone else's fault. I was wrong. And in all these cases, because Jesus is who he says he is, he is the one who says, I am God. Muhammad never said that. Buddha never said that. Whatever religion there is around, there is no one who says, I am God in the flesh and I've come to save everybody. Beneath it all is the truth that Christ poses a decisive threat to the rule of evil in our world. That's the spiritual thing that underpins all persecution. Because it is a threat to power and control. Why does Kim Jong-un outlaw the church? Because it's a threat to his power and authority. And we're praying that actually one that him in North Korea, and there'll be a massive revival in North Korea. Because actually, in a funny sort of way, he has prepared the ground for the most amazing revival in North Korea. Because he and his father and his grandfather have encouraged people to worship. They will come to the statues. They will bow before the statues. They will offer offerings to the statue. And what does he offer? Absolutely nothing. And you imagine for a moment when the truth of Jesus Christ is known throughout North Korea. There will be a nation prepared for worship because they will suddenly realize there is a God who loves them. There is a God who has done something for them that they could never do for themselves. Who is going to give them freedom and life and liberation. So in a funny sort of way. Kim Jong-un is preparing the ground for an amazing revival. Why do I believe that's true? Because it's happened before. In our lifetimes. Chairman Mao in China did exactly the same thing. An atheistic state but he encouraged worship of him. He encouraged people to read the little book. To gather in meetings and to extol the leader. Pseudo-worship. And when the gospel took root through the underground church in China, it has provoked the biggest revival we have ever seen on planet Earth. In our lifetimes. Since I've been born, there have been... Who knows the numbers? Maybe 80 million Christians born again in China. More than the population of the United Kingdom. And we're not aware of it. The world is not aware of it. 
And Ron McMillan, Boyd McMillan, who came and spoke a few uh, months ago in his book, Faith That Endures, says this, Chairman Mao prepared the way for the greatest revival the world has ever seen. And he didn't know it. Isn't that amazing? Paul expresses his total commitment to this new understanding of the gospel because Paul didn't see it. Paul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He actually persecuted the church. He couldn't see it until he had an encounter with Jesus. And that's the crux of it, isn't it? Until we have an encounter with Jesus, we can't see it. I didn't see it. I was brought up in the faith. I was taken to church from the year dot. I couldn't see it till I was 19 years old and had an encounter with Jesus. Who is he? Paul, who once saw himself as the opponent of the church, is now one of the greatest exponents of the gospel. He had his life turned upside down by meeting Jesus. And from a persecutor, he became a proclaimer. He had been wrong. But he had the courage to actually say, I was wrong. That's why he describes himself in his writing sometimes as the least of all the believers. Did you pick that up? He describes himself, and I'm thinking, the Apostle Paul? Probably the greatest missionary of all time. The greatest apologetic of all time. Calls himself the least of all believers. Why? Because he once persecuted the church. He even changes his name from Saul, which was a kingly name. King Saul to Paul which means small, little, runtish. It wasn't a name that Jesus gave him. It was a name he gave himself. I'm Paul. And we know him as the Apostle Paul, but we don't always understand the meaning. I'm the least of all, he says. And he has to admit it was there all along. He knew the Old Testament inside out. He'd studied it all his life and he had not seen it through the prophets in Isaiah and so many other places that actually the gospel was for all. The Jews were to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles. He'd never seen it before till he met Jesus. So he's not going to play chicken now. No half-hearted involvement for this former rabbi He is totally committed to Christ and be prepared to die for him if need be. In verses 7 to 9, Paul expresses his total commitment to this new power. Not only did Paul believe the gospel, but he saw it at work. He saw it changing people's lives. He saw the transforming power of Jesus who is risen from the dead. Changing people from the inside out. Not, not an outside show of piety or transformation. You can't show transformation on the outside, really. It comes from within. And Jesus transforms from within. If you want to read back in Acts chapter 19 of how the church in Ephesus was established, it was through the power of Christ. When he first went there, he met with some believers who had never received the Holy Spirit. They'd only received John's baptism of repentance. So he baptizes them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. He spends three months preaching in the synagogue to the Jews, which was his custom, always going first to the Jews, saying, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that you believe. And then when he's thrown out of the synagogue... 
He spends two years teaching and preaching in one of the sort of local halls in Ephesus. And we're told in Luke, in, by Luke in chapter 19 of Acts that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. And whenever you read that, you think, that's amazing. Not only did God do ordinary miracles through Paul, he did extraordinary miracles through Paul. And it gives a couple of examples. People would be healed by touching a handkerchief that Paul had touched. Now, don't tell me how how that happens. Or an apron that he had worn. When people touched the apron, they were healed. Again, I don't know how that happens, except the only glimpse I know is, you know, the woman who touches the hem of Jesus' garment, she's healed the power of Christ. And somehow, miraculously, Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, knows that it's the power of Jesus working through him. Imagine the temptation for Paul and saying, I've got hankies that heal people. Aren't I great? No, he's Paul. He's small, little, runtish. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's in prison for the sake of the gospel. But somehow, in God's amazing power, things that he touches brings healing to people. It's the power of the Holy Spirit at work. Extraordinary miracles. There were people who gave up the occult in Ephesus. It was a pagan place. They would come out and burn their scrolls. They were mediums, sorcerers. And they would come out and say, we're turning to Christ. We're turning away from these pagan beliefs. We're burning all of that stuff. And then the backlash comes. There's opposition. There's persecution. It actually comes from the business leaders in Ephesus because they're losing money. People aren't buying so many idols anymore. People aren't buying the silver and the gold statues anymore because they're believing in Jesus. And they get together and say, we can't let this go on. We'll be bankrupt. And they stir up a mob to turn against Paul. There's always a backlash when the kingdom of God advances. So Paul in prison writes to the churches. And in his writings, he wants people to know the boundless riches of Christ. Because of Jesus, because of the cross and the resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins. All our sins washed away. We have new life. Brand new life, a resurrection life that won't end. And it conquers death. We have no fear of death anymore because death has been conquered by Jesus. We have a reconciliation with a holy God. We can call this holy God our heavenly father. We have access to him 24-7 and we have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's what he means by the boundless riches of Christ. And no one else can deliver that. No Kim Jong-un. No Mao Zedong. No other faith, religion can deliver that. Only Jesus. So the question ultimately boils down to, is he who he says he is? C.S. Lewis is right. If it's true, it's worth everything. If it's not true, give it up. It's not worth a thing. But what it can't be is, that's okay. You know Jesus is okay. He's a good man. He's one of many prophets in the world. He had amazing things to say and he was a lovely guy. He got a bit wacky when he said that he was God in the flesh. 
Got a bit wacky when he said that he could forgive people all their sins. Got a bit wacky when he said, actually, one day you'll all stand in front of me and give an account of your life. And the judgment won't be based on your performance, but it will be based on your faith in him. No one else can deliver that. And you know what? It's just a foretaste. What we experience now is just a foretaste of what is to come, that new creation. And Paul expresses his commitment to this new vision. And here he sees the church as the culmination of God's eternal plan, his people. And when we read that, we go, really? The church? But what Paul means and what Jesus means is people of God. The church in North Korea that meets in ones and twos today by passing by each other on a park bench and just blessing one another by even a look, that's the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is the men and women and young people and children who have bowed the knee to Jesus and say, Jesus is worth everything. It's not the institution, it's not the bureaucracy, it's not all the abuse of power, it's not any of that stuff. The church is the people of God. That's what Paul means. And the people of God is this new humanity that Jesus is gathering to himself from all over the world, from every nation, tribe and tongue, language, people group, who would come to know Jesus. Isn't it extraordinary to know that there are more believers in China than there are people living in the UK? God is doing extraordinary works. Extraordinary works. And we want to see it here. Those who name Jesus as Savior and Lord. Those who can say, I have a heavenly father in heaven who loved me so much that he gave his one and only son. The Holy Spirit who lives in me. This new humanity, new creation, God's family. God's temple in which he lives. So he says to the Ephesians at the end of this bit, don't be discouraged by the cost. And the one thing that the persecuted church teaches us is they're not discouraged by the cost. Think of the ways that we're discouraged in our faith. They're not discouraged by the cost. Paul was not discouraged by the cost because he believed that even in all of that, the kingdom was coming. The kingdom's coming. So don't be half-hearted, but commit your life to Christ. It's not about religion or an add-on to our lives, but actually the core of who we are. And it's about Jesus, the truth of Jesus. What does that mean to us? How much do we love him? Do we want to see his kingdom come? And are we prepared to give our lives for his cause? Whatever that may mean, tomorrow, at work, at home, in our families, whatever that may mean, but just to say, yeah, I belong to Jesus He's my Lord, my Savior. doesn't mean necessarily you're going to be sent to the ends of the earth. It doesn't mean that you're going to be in prison for Christ. But it means that you will actually say, Jesus comes above all else. That means we're more bacon and eggs. 
Eggs, you can be involved. Yeah, Sunday morning, I, I do church. But do you love Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, strength? For Paul, that's the criteria. Wholehearted worship, wholehearted faith. Paul was a man with a big vision of God. Paul was a man with a deep awareness of his own sinfulness. He had a profound experience of the grace of God. He had a conviction of the call of God on his life. And he had a willingness to be spent in the service of God. And in a little way, I would like to be a bit more like Paul. Would you? Amen. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask Sally to come and the band. Lord, when we come to worship you, we open our eyes and we lift our eyes because we know that you are worth it. And although we're just singing songs, it's more than that. We're expressing our devotion to you, our faith in you. I desire that you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that you do in us what you would want to do, and that you would use us in our daily lives, that you would use us as your church, and all around the world, that your church would be there as good news, pointing the world that is broken and lost to a saviour, who loves, a saviour who died to set us free, a saviour who rose from the dead, conquered death, who reigns and is one day coming again. We worship you and accept our offering now as we worship as a sacrifice of praise. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to have a time where we worship the Lord together. Feel free to stay seated or stand. Feel free to come out for prayer if you'd like to receive prayer during this time when we just worship the Lord. If there's anything that you just feel that you'd love someone just to stand with you and pray with you, just come either to the front row here or into the coffee area. Um, There'll be people just looking out for you to, to come pray for you. So let's stand and worship together.